If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We're looking this morning at this famous and remarkable passage. It's poetic and it's beautiful. It's been read at countless weddings. It was read by Tony Blair at Princess Diana's funeral. It was quoted by Barack Obama in his inaugural address. It's a profound description of love. But it, this great passage is not a standalone passage. It comes in a context. It comes between chapter 12 and chapter 14 in the letter. And so it's actually tightly related to the use of spiritual gifts, the gifts God has given to each one in the church. It shows us how to be gifted, how to use our gifts. And Paul ended chapter 12 with these words, chapter 12, 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. It's good to desire these gifts. God has given them to build up the church. But before we use them, well, Paul wants to show us something, the more excellent way, love. And specifically here, this is the love that marks out the Christian. We saw in chapter 12 that being filled with the Spirit is the immediate reality for every single person who surrenders to Jesus and confesses him as Lord. Every Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit as soon as they put their trust in Jesus. In Corinth, they thought gifts were the mark of being truly spiritual, and Paul says no, the mark of the Spirit is love. True spirituality, the family identity. 
And before we dive in and look at this excellent way, well, did you notice 12.31, he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. I will show it to you. There's just a hint here of a theme that runs right through the letter. Paul is calling the Corinthians to imitate him. Back in chapter 4, he says, I urge you, be imitators of me. Then in chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so as we consider this great description of love, well, we're told to hold in mind Paul's example. An example that makes it concrete. Paul says, let me show you still a more excellent way. You need to know how to be gifted. And it's urgent because a gifted church without love, well, it comes to nothing. And that's our first point. Verses one to three, a gifted church without love is nothing. And verse one to three, I imagine would have come as a a big shock to the church in Corinth. They were using their gifts marked by self-promotion, impressive gifts, building up self. And Paul comes along with a bucket of cold water and he empties it all over them. Verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I am gain nothing. The way Paul says it's so striking, isn't it? He builds up these hypothetical situations almost to the extreme, the extreme extent of gifts imaginable. And then he says, if I have not love, nothing. So verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, the Corinthians were excited about the gift of tongues and it seems they may have seen this as the greatest gift, the most prominent, the most exciting, it's visual, it's visceral. And Paul says, even if I could speak in the language of the angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, it's no more helpful to building up the church than a toddler sitting on the kitchen floor bashing saucepans with a wooden spoon. And in Corinth, well, the gongs and cymbals, they were actually the instruments of the pagan temple. They'd bang them and they'd clatter them and they'd make a racket to try and drive out demons, to try and call on the gods. And so Paul sang tongues without love, no better than a pagan gathering. And then he ramps it up further in verse two. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. So we've got prophecy, we've got knowledge, and not just a bit of it, but all of it. All mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. Mysteries in 1 Corinthians speaks of God's revelation. So imagine understanding it all. It could be useful in a Bible study group. Or having all knowledge, well, you'd surely win the debate. And then add to that faith, well, faith that can move a mountain. It's a big exaggeration, but there's no need to get stuck at the airport with a council flight on the way back from Tenerife. Just bring them out in here. Well, Paul says, even if I have gifts like that, but have not love, I'm nothing. Verse three, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. These are two books I've really enjoyed in the past. This one's a 
biography of George Muller. And uh, this one is Five English Reformers by J.C. Ryle. Now, George Muller began his ministry, or began a ministry serving orphans in Bristol, and it grew to care for thousands of children. And regularly, he would give away every last penny, and he would trust the Lord to provide. Well, it was a wonderful work, and it was clearly done in love. But Paul says, even such charity as that, without love, done for self-promotion, well, I gain nothing. J.C. Ryle writes of five men who were martyred for the gospel in the 16th century, contending for the truth of the gospel, and some were burned here in London. Clear acts of love. But Paul says, even martyrdom, if not done in love, I gain nothing. That's a shocking example, isn't it? It's an extreme example, and it's deliberate to drive the point home. Love is vital. And it's key to be clear about this, because gifts themselves are not the mark of true spirituality. Whether it's a room full of people speaking tongues, or the most eloquent preacher, or miracles, even to move mountains. It's not the gifts on display in the church that are the sure sign that it's healthy. It's easy to assume that, isn't it, that lots of gifts means this must be good. But gifts don't necessarily mean true spirituality. Because the question is, how are the gifts being used? Is there love? And without it, there's nothing. Remember back in chapter 3, Paul said, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. See, Paul wants the church to be built up, in his words, with gold and silver. He wants a labor in the Lord that will last. Again, in chapter 8, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So imagine the Bible study with the person who knows all mysteries, but their goal in the Bible study is to make sure everybody knows they know all mysteries. Well, would it build up? Would there be any work that lasts? Without love, the use of gifts is not building the church, it's building with straw that will be burned up on the last day. Paul says it comes to nothing. And so he says, let me show you this more excellent way. The body of Christ consists of individual members. It was really great to hear Phil reflecting on it earlier. God has perfectly arranged the members in the body, each one of us. And he has given us gifts, and it's for the interdependent work of building the church. And we're to use them in love. Well, so what does this love look like? And that's our second point. Consider your love and Paul's and Christ's. Have you heard of writings being described as a purple passage? I remember someone reading to me from a book that they loved and they said, now we're coming to the purple passage, the great moment of literature. And verse four to seven may well be considered as some sort of purple passage on love, but they're actually still part of Paul's rebuke. And so one writer puts it this way, instead of reading this as the purple prose passage, we should see it as the purple face passage passage. These would have been hard words for the Corinthians to hear, no doubt. Because actually the tone, well, the tone is, here's what love looks like, and you're not living like this. So there are 16 ways love is described in these verses, and and they correspond to different ways the Corinthian church have failed to love one another. And so it's a wake-up call. It's as if to say, 
well, love is patient and kind, but you, Corinthian church, you don't wait for the poor at the Lord's Supper. And love does not envy and boast, but there's jealousy and strife among you as you quarrel over whose leader is best. Love is not arrogant or rude, but repeatedly, Paul describes the Corinthians as boastful, boasting in their knowledge, in their leaders. And that word rude, well, it's the same word root that describes what we saw in chapter 11, the humiliation of another person, dishonoring them, bringing shame. And so Paul goes on, love does not insist on its own way, but your focus is on yourself. Love is not irritable or resentful, but you're taking one another to court over minor disagreements. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It's worth just pausing on that for a moment because it's clear love is not soft. It's not passive. Love will call out wrongdoing. It's concerned for truth. It rejoices in it. It has backbone. But in Corinth, rather than rejoicing in truth, the church is tolerating a man who's sleeping with his stepmother and behaving like it doesn't matter. You're a gifted church, says Paul, but you're in it for yourselves. And if you use the gifts God's given you that way, it will come to nothing. And so Paul says, consider your love. Consider my example. Verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all all things. It's a climactic refrain about love. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is the model. It's what we've seen him doing throughout the letter. It's what Corinne uh, mentioned in chapter 8 through 10. Love bears all things, love endures all things. Paul was willing to give up his rights and his freedoms because he was concerned for the eternal good of others. Chapter 9, he says, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Love bears all things. It endures all things. And love believes all things. And love hopes all things. And that's not to say that love is gullible. So if I were to stand here and tell you I've got a pet hippo at home, you don't have to believe me because love believes all things. No, it's, a verse, it's not a verse to say we shouldn't distinguish between truth and falsehood. It's not to say anything goes. And we've seen that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices in the truth. It's discerning. But I wonder if to believe and hope all things, well actually it's the attitude Paul has to the Corinthians. From the beginning of the letter he starts with thanking God for them, for God's work in them. He believes their confession of Jesus as Lord. He writes the letter to them as brothers and sisters. And he hopes for them to listen and to grow and to be full of the work of the Lord that lasts. He's for them. Paul's example unfolds love to us. And Paul imitates Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The letter begins by focusing on Jesus' saving work on the cross. And it's infused throughout the perfect example of love. His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. The word here for love in chapter 13 is agape. And throughout the New Testament, it's closely connected with the work of Jesus. The sacrificial service for the good of others, seen perfectly in his death on the cross to bring salvation. It's love like this that we're called to. So what does love look like? Well, 
Some of you may remember the rock band from the early 2000s, The Darkness, and their big hit, Love Is Only A Feeling. They sung it with cheesy falsetto, but it's what so many people think, isn't it? And it's so far from the truth, because here we see love is active, and it's concrete, and we live it. The world around us regularly tells us that love should be easy, to feel easy. And if it doesn't feel easy, then something's gone wrong. Time to walk away. But the reality is, well, love will actually often feel hard. It feels like sacrifice. It's costly. Consider Paul. Consider Christ. Love is profoundly other person-centered, and it's made of daily decisions and actions that put the good of others before ourselves. Well, as we consider these verses, we may well feel challenged, conscious perhaps where we fall short, and of course we all fall short. None of us loves perfectly. But wonderfully, the very greatest example of love that we see in the Lord Jesus is the perfect work of love that brings forgiveness for where we lack it. We said those words earlier from 1 John chapter 4. It's agape, again, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this call to love comes from a place of great security as those redeemed to be God's people, right, through, right with him through Jesus. And as we consider these verses this morning as a church family, well, I do want to encourage us. I don't think we're in the place that Corinth was I see lots of love amongst us as we use the gifts God's given us in our life together, just this morning. Costly decisions and actions that seek the good of others, giving of time, resources, and energy. From practical service in our meetings, informally and formally, to all kinds of service and gifts used behind the scenes as we work together as a church. Often very costly. Time given in prayer, study, preparation to invest in others, willingness to welcome. And in London, it's hard, isn't it? It takes time to do a lot of things when we're all spread out together, but time given to meet one another, to listen, to speak truth, to help out, to be there, to visit, and much more. As we recognized a few weeks ago, we give thanks to the Lord to those who have taught us and who has modeled love to us. But we want to keep growing in love, don't we? Because it's the mark of the Spirit. And the Lord by his Spirit will equip us and give us the power and the strength to love. And so as we consider these verses, we want to ask the Lord, well, continue that work in us by your Spirit. To ask him to reveal blind spots where we can grow in love. As I've been reflecting on these words over recent weeks, well, it's been, it's been really exciting, actually. They've been coming to mind in all kinds of moments, a bit like having a backing track to shape daily life and priorities. It has been challenging, convicting, but also really helpful, putting flesh on the bones of what love looks like, showing the more excellent ways. As we think about life together and how we use these gifts, well, love is patient and kind, Love does not envy others. It doesn't envy others' gifts. It doesn't boast in its own. It asks, how can I use them in service? It's concerned not to humiliate and shame, but to honor. It realizes it's not all about me. And it's not irritable or easily embittered by injuries, whether they're real or perceived. 
And where there are wrongdoings, love doesn't hold resentment and let it grow. There are, of course, some sad situations when reconciliation is necessarily limited. But in most circumstances, love remembers God's mercy to us. I will remember their sins no more. Love doesn't pursue wrongdoing. It delights when truth is known and proclaimed. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so Paul says, this is how to use your gifts. This is how to be gifted. Gifts are needed to build the church. And this is what love looks like. And then Paul says, if you're still not sure, well, consider your future. Because it's love. And that's our final point. Verse 8, love never ends. As Paul persuades the Corinthian church to change their way, to use their gifts, to pursue love, well, he gives this final reason. Love never ends. Literally, it won't fall. It's established like some kind of great girder, fixed and permanent, that runs through time and into eternity. And all around it, as things of the world, even spiritual gifts, pass away and come to an end, love holds firm. Love, is pay, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. You see, the future for the Christian is not spiritual gifts. The future for the Christian is love. And verse 9, we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass, pass away. These gifts bring knowledge, and they bring truth and growth, They bring us God's word, but they do it in part, bit by bit, part by part, as the body works together. Remember back in chapter one, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. He gives thanks that we are not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no lack. We have the gifts. But when Jesus returns, they'll be redundant. Love will endure And so Paul, if you like, is saying it's time to think like grown-ups. It's time to behave like adults, to get the right perspective on gifts and love. And he gives us this image in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This language of children, well, it comes up three other times in the letter. Back in chapter 4, Paul calls the Corinthians his beloved children. And then he says to them, I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. In chapter 3, he says to them, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And then in chapter 14, he appeals to them, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So this language of children all through the letter, well, it's connected to the call to grow up and to imitate Paul, to be mature. And so Paul says, time to stop behaving like children and to get gifts in their place and to get love in its place. One author puts it this way. He says, these are valuable gifts, but only in the perspective of this world with all its imperfections and impermanence. To elevate them, therefore, in our scale of values above what's eternal is to make a huge error of judgment. Because gifts are not the destination. As Lloyd's Bank would say, 
They're for the journey. Love is what we're made for. It's what God's redeemed his people for. And it's what we'll know fully forever. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The illustration of the mirror here, it's not the hall of mirrors. They're where everything's distorted and strange. It's not the crisp modern mirror that's so sharp that you accidentally think it's the door. Well, the Corinthian mirrors, well, they're probably metal, polished up, and so they give a true form, but it's dim. And so Paul says to a church, well, if you're using your gifts rightly, you will know God, you will see much, but it's not yet the bright fullness of face-to-face. When Jesus returns, we will move from wonderful, true, life-giving, but still partial knowledge to something quite mind-blowing, face-to-face with God. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The Christian's future is to know God as he knows us. He's creator. We remain his creatures, but we will know him as he already knows us fully. We will love him as we were made to, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like that solid iron girder that penetrates from this world through to eternity, the future for every Christian is to know God's love and to love him perfectly forever. Can you imagine it? Just not a hint of selfishness. Perhaps you're looking in on the Christian message this morning. The world around us wants love. Well, where is it found? Love actually? Love is all you need? Love Island? If you want to know love, come to Jesus, who gave his life on the cross to pay the price for your sin so that you might be forgiven. Surrender to him as Lord, and he will fill you with his spirit that you might grow in love now and know love in its fullness forever. And as a church family, as we come to use our gifts, well, let's keep pursuing grown-up behavior. Verse 13, so now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Hold on to Jesus in faith, forgiven when we fail. Look forward to the future in hope. Jesus will return, and we will know resurrection life. And live now as we will live forever in spirit-empowered love. God has equipped us with gifts, a vital role they have to build up the church, but gifts are not the destination. Gifts are for the journey. And one day faith will turn into sight and hope will meet its fulfillment and we will know the fullness of love in the presence of our maker, which will never end. And so Paul says, let me show you a more excellent way. Pursue love. Let's pray together. (coughs) Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you have loved us supremely in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for redeeming us from sin to be your people and giving us your spirit that we might grow in love. Please forgive us where we fall short. Please show us our blind spots. And please help us to live like grown-ups looking forward to the future, 
the eternal love you've prepared for us, using the gifts you give us now for the good of one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.